Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I am here, like everyone else in the world, on Zoom today for a special edition of Intrepid Podcast, joined remotely by Stephanie Carvin and Leah West. Stephanie, what are we talking about today? Oh, I think you should talk about my lungs. I'm really <laughs> sick. I have bron- I don't have the COVID, but man, I picked a heck of a time to get sick. So, you know, I thought with all the chaos and destruction in the world, and you were like, hey, we should talk about the Emergencies Act and your kind of usual chipper self. And I thought, okay okay, let's, let's do this. And I, I can't think of anyone else I'd rather talk to about emergencies than you and Leah, because you're writing a chapter in your forthcoming textbook on just this very topic and how topical it is. So we're going to be talking about the law of emergencies as it applies to pandemics in Canada. Of course, um, you know, there's a, there's a number of, of frameworks we can look at. Um, for those of you who are, uh, for those in the audience who heard our podcast on the legal regimes for the uh, World Health Organization and pandemic. There's obviously a lot of international law that we talked about there, but it's my understanding that today we're mostly going to talk about Canadian domestic law as the situation has progressed in Canada over the last week or so. Yeah, that so that was episode 119, and our focus there was on the international health regulations. At that time, recall that uh, the World Health Organization had not yet declared a pandemic. So we were focused on the international health regulations and what they dealt with and, and, and the significance of that, as well as a little bit of discussion of the Quarantine Act. So we're actually going to go a few steps further because the facts on the ground have now shifted enormously, as everyone is acutely aware uh, and so I, we thought that perhaps the, the best way to approach this is, is sort of an escalating series of responses, because what we're seeing, I think, in some of the discussions, at least I'm seeing in, in the discussions, is an immediate a gravitational pull to the most extreme powers available to, in this case, the, the federal government. Um, and that's probably not the most appropriate response. This is something I've often seen in my classes, though, and I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, that whenever you're doing a simulation in class, kind of the first thing that people turn to is the most extreme option. Like said, well, what's your policy plan? And they say, suspend the constitution. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's walk that back a little bit. So yeah, no, I'm glad that we're doing this because it doesn't make sense to go to the most extreme option first. Although that's definitely what we're hearing from a lot of political quarters. And and actually, I think it's probably worth at the outset saying a few words about what Lee and I have written about in terms of of best practices in emergency law. Emergency law can actually be quite dangerous. There are many states on the face of this planet who have been in persistent states of emergency for some time, usually political emergencies, uh, and it can be very corrosive of civil liberties and rights. And of course, there isn't much appetite right now, perhaps in the broader public to talk about civil liberties and rights, but there will come a time when we look back and do a diagnostics on our response and wonder if we if we calibrated it properly. And so I think going in, we, we, have, to, we have to be a cognizant of the implications of some of these powers for the coherence of, of our, our civil society and the implications, especially for vulnerable portions of that population. Leah, do you want to start us off then and perhaps give us a, you know, you and I have been talking about some of these principles. Did you want to sort of walk through some of the things that, that you and I uh, agree should guide emergency law? Well, I think some of the basic principles that we think about in, in terms of all law apply in emergencies, we just need to be acutely aware of it. So the ideas about whether or not the laws themselves are necessary and proportionate to deal with the response. And another big thing in general is about ensuring that these powers that are in place are time limited and that they're subject to oversight and review. So those are all kind of three core things that I would start with with any new legislation that's being implemented in a time of emergency. So necessary meaning 
does this actually respond to a necessary need of the government? Does the government need this additional power to handle an emergency? Um, and is it proportionate? Is it the right amount of additional powers or authorities for the government to deal proportionately in, in terms of the, of the crisis and not broad overreaching, but trying to narrowly tailor any type of emergency legislation and then putting on some sort of review and sunset clause onto emergency legislation so that it, it requires discussion, debate, and potentially um, parliamentary approval to um, continue to have those legislation, the, the additional powers in place, because we can see how even in places like France, after the Charlie Hebdo attack, they were in a state of emergency, not once, not twice, not three times, but I believe they extended their state of emergency four times. But that required actual action on behalf of the government. If you can have perpetual states of emergency, it, it can be unpalatable for a government to give up power once it has it if it's not, if there's no kind of forced check. Yeah. And I think it's important to underscore that when you talk about emergency powers, one of the common qualities of emergency powers is they tend to empower the executive branch relative to the other branches of government upon whom we often depend for purposes of calibrating the uh, activities of the state. We call those checks and balances, the powers of the courts and the legislature. Uh, And so emergencies really, they extend a substantial amount of often quite broad and discretionary powers to the executive. And so any good emergency law really should have three ingredients, in my view. It should have clear criteria on when uh, the extraordinary power can be triggered. It should have clear list and confined understanding of what powers are accorded once that emergency is triggered. And it should have clear rules on when the emergency terminates. Um, And in fact, the key federal law, which we'll talk about uh, towards the back of this podcast, the Emergencies Act was enacted in 1988 with those criteria in mind. Why? Because it was designed to repeal the War Measures Act, which, of course, is infamous in Canadian history, not just for the October crisis in 1970, but also the internment of Japanese Canadians in the Second World War. All right. So why don't we start marching through our topics? And and I thought perhaps we should start at the border. Uh, This whole crisis really began with uh, conversations about uh, imported instances of the coronavirus and border controls. And so let's talk about what sort of provisions uh, could apply at the border. And, and, And recall in episode 119, we spent some time talking about the Quarantine Act. Since that time, since our discussion back in February, the Quarantine Act has actually been used. And so the Quarantine Act, uh, the modern version of the Quarantine Act is about, what, 14 years old, and it's only been used a handful of times, including in 2014 with Ebola. But most recently, in relation to this latest outbreak uh, scenario, it was used for those persons who were evacuated from uh, Wuhan and also from uh, cruise ships, who then, as people will recall, were subject to quarantine in various locations, Trenton and uh, in Cornwall. There was an open question in my mind as to whether that was, in fact, something they consented to. But it, but it turns out, and a shout out to at Maple Leaf Lawyer, who uh, is uh, one of our Twitter followers, and I know listens to this podcast for pointing me to the orders in council. There were orders in council in place that made that quarantine mandatory. Uh, and there still exists a quarantine order uh, in relation to cases uh, of that ilk, of that sort, uh, that's, in, that's in place at present. Now, one of the discussions, Leah, you and I were having is, well, what is the government going to do in relation to controlling the border now that it's been announced that there'll be a closure of the Canada-U.S. border? Do, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I just wanted to back up. We talked about the Quarantine Act being enforced, but I mean, the Quarantine Act is always enforced. The, the elements of the Quarantine Act um, exist every time one of us cross the border, right? We're always subject to being questioned about um, whether or not we've been uh, in a place where we're, you know, at risk of a communicable disease 
and screening agents are typically those border agents that we're crossing and asking us if we've bought too much booze. They just wear two hats. The quarantine act is always important. It's the additional measures that kind of surpass the need for a variety of checks and balances and reviews and um, a whole bunch of different types of people getting involved. And, and an emergency measure under the quarantine act just says, no, you're not allowed in unless you follow the, the subsequent procedures, unless you agree to abide by these things that we're enforcing on you, you can't come in. Rather than the starting position being, if you're Canadian, you can come in, but we're going to ask you a bunch of questions and you're subject to screening and you may have to isolate and you may have to get a health assessment and then that could be reviewed. It just kind of truncates that whole process and says, and this is what we've seen happen with those travelers coming back from China, coming back from Princess Cruise Ship, where it said, we're going to stop with all of that and just say, you can't come in unless you will agree to follow these conditions and these conditions are quarantine. So what we might see at the American border is something very similar where the full stop of you can't come into this country writ large unless you are driving a truck and also probably there'll be some sort of measures around any truck driver that's driving trucks for commercial purposes also have to be in good health and yada 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 yada. Um, But otherwise unless you're a citizen who's been in good health and you agree to self-isolate, who's coming back, or you're driving a truck for commercial purposes, you're not allowed in. So it would start with the preclusion with exceptions rather than the allowance of being coming into the country being the starting point. Yeah. And and so we don't know, as we record this podcast, what legal uh, tools the government will use. Uh, They're supposed to announce it today, Wednesday in the afternoon, but we're recording before the announcement. But you and I, I think, are both guessing that the powers they'll use are the ones you just described, which are found for those following along in Section 58 of the Quarantine Act, which has been the provision used for the Wuhan and and, uh, cruise ship evacuees. Now this will just uh, be a more sweeping invocation of Section 58. Other possibilities would things be things like the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, which in Section 38 does allow uh, persons to be denied admissibility on health grounds. But it's a really unwieldy law, it seems to me, to use inadmissibility provi- provisions under the uh, Immigration Refugee Protection Act, just because there's a whole uh, process that then follows when someone is declared inadmissible. It doesn't seem sufficiently, well, frankly, blunt, because we're talking about a very blunt closure of the border, something we've never seen before. Just from my kind of policy perspective, myself, Phil say we've actually looked at the policies that have been in, in the actions of our government since 9-11. We because Americans remember 9-11, Canadians remember 9-12. And the absolute reflex of the Canadian government has always been to keep that border open no matter the crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And we have worked extremely hard since 9-11 to do just that, to keep that border open as much as possible because 80% of our trade goes to the United States, 20% of their trade comes to Canada. And it's just so economically ruinous to, to if that trade really stops. So it's such a dramatic turn of events. And I, I put this on Twitter last night. And I, of course, you inevitably get like closure, people saying, well, this is normal. But as you say, um, and this kind of goes back to, to, to the things you guys said at the beginning of the podcast, which is, you know, once these things are put in place, they're not always easy to reverse or get the other party to reverse. So I'm glad they, they've gone slow. It may seem that Trump kind of sped things up a bit this morning. Uh, so we're still learning what, what those measures will actually be. Leah, I was, I was really interested in, in the point where you said that, you know, the Quarantine Act, is parts of it are always in effect when you go to uh, the customs at, at the border. And, yeah. and those powers can go all the way up to detention. If you fail to comply 
immediately at the border. So say you try and skirt the border officer and say, I'm not sticking around for a health assessment by a quarantine and to be assessed by a quarantine officer. Um, they can detain you at the border. Then there are mechanisms by which you can be ordered to do certain things, either in terms of going to be assessed by a public health official or to self-isolate um, and where you don't. And there's kind of an enforcement mechanism um, in place to go and validate that you're complying or not complying, then that can become a criminal offense where you can actually be charged. Um, but this kind of goes back to what Prime Minister Trudeau said um, when asked the question, um, when he imposed the new measures at the border was, is this going to continue to be voluntary? Are people coming from abroad continue to voluntarily self-isolate? And he said, yes, because there's no mechanism to enforce more mandatory orders on the tens of thousand people crossing the border that are snowbirds coming back from, uh, you know, spring break. There's just no mechanism to enforce more mandated orders on that number of people. Right. It's just not feasible, not practical. And quite frankly, building mass prisons at this time, probably not in our best interest. Yes. No, we're trying to get people out of prison these days. Yeah. <laughs> so to be clear, so we're betting, and we'll see if we're right, that we're going to see another order and council issued under Section 58 of the uh, Quarantine Act. Uh, and, and everything I think will turn, and it goes. this goes to your point, Stephanie, on on essential border crossings. And so uh, we're going to see a uh, shutdown on, on tourist travel and, and most business travel, I would assume. But obviously, food security obliges an open border in relation to supply of foodstuffs, uh, which uh, transit the United States coming from Mexico and other places, as well as coming from the United States. And so uh, you're, I'm assuming you're going to see some pretty powerful carve-outs there. And also, the integrated automobile uh, industry will require an exemption of some sort, uh, amongst others. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the details of that are. Perhaps there's one other instrument we can talk about before we skip on to the more internal responses at the provincial, potentially federal level within Canada, and that's the Aeronautics Act. And so uh, some questions about what the government was using when it was shuffling flights about and deciding which airports would now receive exclusively international flights. And I haven't actually seen uh, what they used, but I at the time thought it would probably be another provision that was introduced after 9-11, which is emergency directions by the Minister of Transport, which allows in the interest of safety of the public the minister to issue an emergency direction about diversion of aircraft to alternate landing sites uh, and uh, the movement of aircraft or persons at, at aviation facilities. Uh, and so it's possible they use that uh, for purposes of reshuffling the allocation of international flights, but but uh, I can't uh, I can't swear by that because uh, I haven't seen any emergency direction on that. Also on that, the uh, requirement to screen individuals for certain medical conditions or, or temperature and that kind of thing, there's, there's measures under the Aeronautics Act that enforce screening on airlines or people trying to either access at uh, aircraft or access an aerodrome. Typically, it says for public safety, and we typically think of that as like screening for potential terrorists, right? Um, but it, that also could apply in, in terms of screening people for temperatures because they pose a public safety risk because of coronavirus. So that's all done under the Aeronautics Act. And the, the same for limiting people onto the flights that don't um, meet citizenship requirements can also be done on the Aer Aeronautics Act, whether or not it's an emergency or an interim measure. We don't know which one, but both of them provide for that kind of uh, additional requirements on airlines. Okay, so let's shift gears and talk about inside the country then. Um, and, and here I think we need to spend some time talking about provincial powers rather than skipping right to the federal level. So I think we need to talk about two sorts of, of special uh, provincial powers. First of all, the powers that exist under 
uh, public health law uh, in all of the provinces, albeit the public health laws do vary. Some are more antiquated than others. And, and that actually is possibly an issue for us as we go forward and talk about coordination. But my focus is going to be on the on the Ontario Act, which is a fairly modern instrument. In fact, was updated after SARS, as we mentioned, Stephanie, in episode 119. So the Health Protection and Promotion Act. So let's spend some time on that as an exemplar of the sorts of laws, public health laws at the provincial level before turning to the emergency laws that are now being invoked by, at my count, I'm up to official powers to compel. I, I think I saw reference to BC, Alberta, Poitou, uh, Ontario, and I saw a reference to Prince Edward Island. So public health law. So it, looking at the Ontario provisions, so the most important thing I think for our purposes today is section 22 of that law. And section 22 of that law allows the medical officer of health to issue an order that a person take certain actions in relation to a communicable disease. And so effectively issue a quarantine order. Uh, and uh, that person then is obliged to follow that order. And in fact, that order can be enforced through a court. Uh, and the other thing I think that's important here, and this was introduced after SARS, is under that provision, it is possible for the medical officer of health to issue a, a class order to persons who they can't identify specifically, but who fulfill certain criteria. So in the SARS context, recall that a lot of people were getting sick having attended the funerals of people who died of SARS. And so a class order would say everyone who attended the funeral of, John, of Joe Blow must here on after pursue the following measures. As time progresses, it, it may be more important for us to issue these class orders because we may not be able to identify individuals but, and, and by name and issue them specifically individualized notice, but it, it may, we may end up with, with outbreaks that are tied to particular places or events and say to persons who were at those places or events, you are here on after obliged to take the following steps. Yeah, I think this actually gets to something that you and I were, were commenting on online the other day is that, you know, there's a question of is is Ontario or Canada going to adopt measures th that apparently Israel has where they're going to be using cell phone information to track these individuals. And I think we had kind of come to the conclusion that this isn't something that's likely or feasible and it's a little outside the topic of our conversation, but I wanted to bring it up because I keep seeing it being mentioned on Twitter, but it's not clear to me that Ontario or Alberta, for example, would have the legal ability really to get that kind of information, let alone process it, let alone what framework this would even be done on and how quickly it could be done. So in terms of the scenario that we've seen uh, put to Premier Ford, which is the provincial government getting access to data from Rogers and Bell, whenever we're talking about sharing information, you need to have the lawful authority for an agency to share the information and the government agency have the lawful authority to collect it. So the starting point for Rogers and Bell is that they couldn't just hand the information over to the Ontario government because they were feeling generous and wanted to help in a crisis. They would need to have, um, the provincial government would need to have lawful authority to um, request and that information would need it to be handed over under like a, like a warrant or some sort of other subpoena to the government. And the provincial government would need to have lawful authority to collect it. And as of right now, they don't have that capacity. However, there are some broad powers under the Provincial Emergencies Management Act that basically say that they could collect information or do anything necessary in order to deal with an emergency. And if you wanted to interpret that quite broadly, then you could potentially say that they could create some sort of massive order that would require telcos to hand over their data. But I think that that would be really susceptible to um, a challenge as not being proportionate or necessary um, to manage this crisis. 
From the federal government's point of view, again, CSC would be the institution that would have the capacity to collect that kind of information. They, as a starting point, cannot direct their activities at Canadians or persons within Canada. They could only do that if they're assisting the Canadian Armed Forces or the RCMP. Again, the RCMP would have no mechanism for collecting that kind of data. And to be clear, the emergencies, all the legislation we're talking about, that wouldn't change that. So in the context of a public welfare emergency, which we'll get to, it's a closed and enumerated list of things that the government can make orders and regulations about. Surveillance is not one of them. That would be different if we were talking about a different type of emergency, but this is in a public welfare emergency as a starting point, no. That's where we get to the idea that Craig was talking about from the beginning about emergency legislation. And so that would, I think, be the only way that this kind of tracking using uh, metadata or personal information from either Facebook, Google, wherever um, could ever be implemented in Canada. I think there's just no other legal mechanism to do it, especially at the federal level. And, and probably separate in new in new legislation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's let's shift gears then, because I'm conscious of the time, and, and talk about the what we are now seeing is, and that's the invocation of provincial states of emergency. And so in Ontario, the relevant act is the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. So that was invoked by Premier Doug Ford uh, yesterday. Uh, and there, I think uh, the key uh, provision that we have to worry about is the one that. Uh, the provincial government did invoke, which is 7.0.2, and it allows the lieutenant governor and council, that is the uh, cabinet, uh, to make orders that are necessary and essential in the circumstances to mitigate harm to persons, uh, amongst other things, right? And so then thereafter, there's a a specific enumerated list of things they can do. So again, I want to underscore this. Uh, We all agree, I think, and Lee and I talked about this moments ago, that, look, you just can't have an open-ended emergency power the closest we come at the federal level is for a war emergency, and we're nowhere close to that. Uh, so you want to have a graduated list of things that the government can do so that invocations of emergency doesn't mean that everything is a carte blanche, whatever the government wants to do. And if you look at the things that the provincial government is empowered to do under that provision, it's a quite expansive list. And so, and so it, you know, I would encourage people to look at that list and, and take into account as they look at that list, well, the provinces have a lot of power, right? And so when they're contemplating what the feds can contribute, Keep in mind that, legally speaking, the provinces have substantial authority in an emergency that include, for example, procuring necessary goods, services, and resources. And so the provinces, in theory, could order manufacturers to start producing ventilators. At least I think that's one construal of this. Uh, Do we really need to be talking about federalizing that? I think the question of federalizing, which we'll get to in a second, is probably one of scale and possibly one of coordination at a practical level probably not a legal level. I think most of the provinces at a legal level have the sorts of powers that they need for purposes of this uh, current situation, whether they have the wherewithal administratively uh, and financially, uh, and we'll get to finance in a second, is another question. Uh, And so an important list of powers. Now, what's happened in Ontario, you can actually find now the order that was issued by the government. It's an order in council, 520-220. And it's a very short one. It just simply says that pursuant to 7.0, Point two sub four, paragraph 14 of the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, all organized public events of over 50 people are hereby prohibited, including parades and events and communal services within places of worship. All right, that's, that's, that's where we stand right now in Ontario, and it's being used to restrict gatherings in the interest of social distancing. 
the paragraph 14 under which this current order and council was issued is a basket clause. And it basically says that the government can take such other actions uh, as it believes necessary in order to prevent, respond, or alleviate the effects of an emergency. Uh, that basket clause is what's being used to, to bar events involving people over 50. How broadly you read that basket clause and whether it could reach tracking hypothetical you've been describing is an open question. I have some doubts that that, that sort of micro tracking would be useful at this point, given the scale of the of what seems to be community transmission at this point. And since we've already moved beyond sort of micro targeting of individuals to a full on uh, stay at home, except for essential purposes, we're sort of past that point, it seems to me. Although who knows if we're into an 18th month cycle where we quash outbreaks and then there are periodic uh, further outbreaks in various uh, localized regions, maybe that kind of micro-targeting will become more important. But I leave it to experts who know more about epidemiology and uh, how to quash epidemics uh, to address that issue. My only observation here is Constitution 101, which is basically where I live, which is that the provinces have the mandate for healthcare, pretty much. And sure. so it makes it makes sense for them to have the greatest powers. So for all of this discussion we've been having and this kind of buildup about the federal government invoking the Emergencies Act, it actually seems to me to be far more important that the provinces do so first. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a shared power, but I think you're right for practical and legal reasons in the sense that uh, a one-size-fits-all federal response may not actually respond from a necessity perspective to the nature of this disease. And to assume that what's happening in one part of the country necessarily obliges the same measures in another is probably not the best approach, given that we've got to keep society functioning. Um, and at some point, we're going to be very concerned about the economic implications of all this social distancing that we're now engaged in. So, so why don't we actually talk, though, about the, the federal aspect? And I think probably there are two things we should mention about the federal emergency powers. And the first, there are two different acts that we need to talk about, and they're quite distinct and important. The first is the Emergency Management Act, which is regularly invoked. Why? Because it's the mechanism that allows the federal government, in the event that the provinces declare their own uh, emergency, to funnel money to the provinces. And you see this with floods and wildfires all the time. In fact, uh, as you may recall, we talked about uh, this in relation to the floods last year in one of our earlier podcasts about 12 months ago, Stephanie. Uh, and uh, what's important here is that the feds conclude that uh, an emergency declared by the province is of importance to the federal government. And at that point, there's the authority that, that uh, it, the Minister of Public Safety has to, to seek cabinet approval to start moving money to the provinces. And I'm pretty sure we're going to start seeing that happen pretty quickly. And so now that we've got a number of provinces that have moved uh, to emergency declaration of their own, we're going to start probably seeing the Emergency Management Act triggered at the federal level. Yeah, I think the board government even said that they were part of their economic plan included, you know, two thirds of that money was coming from the feds or something in that respect. So if the Emergencies Management Act, is this, so this is the one that was passed in 1988? No, no, this is one that was what well, we used to be called the uh, Emergency Preparedness Act, and it was repealed and replaced about a decade ago. It's now called the Emergency Management Act. It basically imposes an obligation on the Minister of Public Safety to do a lot of emergency planning, but that also uh, has other provisions that, that empowers the minister, again, with the blessing of, of cabinet, to, to move money uh, to assist the provinces. Right. So this is a separate piece of legislation. Very from separate. A decade ago. Yeah, and very and and both it and its predecessors were regularly invoked in response to natural disasters. So let's talk about what everyone else seems to be talking about these days, and that's the Federal Emergencies Act. And this is the 1988 Act that you just mentioned, uh, Stephanie. And, and I actually think it's actually quite an elegant act. It was it was enacted in 1988, which is a relatively calm period, to 
repeal the War Measures Act, which was an unmoderated uh, piece of legislation that uh, allowed the federal government to do any number of things. 1988, right, we're a few years into the charter period, post-Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The War Measures Act doesn't doesn't measure up very well against uh, the, the expectations of the charter, probably not the most viable instrument to post-charter. And so 1988, they enact this, this new law. And it's got those provisions that Lee and I said were so important. It's got triggers. It's got a closed list. And I, I agree with Leah, it's a closed list, uh, at least for the sorts of emergencies we're talking about here. And we'll talk about public welfare emergencies in a second. A closed list of things that the federal government can do. And then it's got termination provisions, as well as accountability mechanisms. And by closed list, it's it's not like, so the Ontario legislation seems to be quite broad in its scope. But uh, by closed list, you mean that these are fairly narrowly defined things, powerful things, but that the scope of this is, is very much set out in the legislation. Yes, yeah, there's exactly. no, you know, and any other thing that you think you need to do clause here. Yeah. So I'm going to make two initial points on the Federal Emergencies Act. The first is that the Federal Emergencies Act only comes into play when we're dealing with a national emergency, right? And a national emergency is not just whatever you say it is. It's a defined term. And so it's a national emergency is an urgent or critical situation of a temporary nature, right? Remember, emergencies can't be indefinite. They're supposed to be of a temporary nature that in terms of the paragraph that most matters to us, seriously endangers the life, health, or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it, right? So it's not, you know, go federal right away. It's got to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. Now, I I personally think that probably we're dealing with a disease that exceeds the capacity of any one province to deal with. So I think it's fair to call this potentially a national emergency, uh, but then in terms of actually triggering an emergency, there's a number of different types of emergency. And they go from, I don't want to say banal, because this is obviously a serious situation, but amongst the range of emergencies, public welfare emergency is probably the most banal because it doesn't involve people shooting at you, right? And so public welfare emergency, which in this case involves the disease, through to a full-on war emergency, which as the term suggests means something very kinetic, a political crisis that's very kinetic and, and, and potentially quite violent. So a public welfare emergency is an emergency that is caused by a real or imminent here disease in human beings. That's what we're talking about. That results or may result in a danger to life or property, social dis- disruption or breakdown in the flow of essential goods, et cetera. And, that, and that's really what we're talking about here. Now, now, what has to happen before you declare one of these things? Well, the governor and council has to decide on reasonable grounds that there are measures necessary to deal with this emergency. And reasonable matters, because it's not in their opinion. It's an objective standard. It's on reasonable grounds. And that means it's subject ultimately, and this was intentional if you look at the legislative history, it's subject to judicial review at the back end if they get it wrong. And, and then just to a- remind everyone, I just want to remind everyone, governor and council means cabinet. Right, federal cabinet. Right, just, to, just for those who are playing along. Right. And then section eight is the list of things. And it's a closed list, but it's still a very powerful list. One of the things, one point I'll make here is that that list overlaps quite significantly with some of the powers the provinces already have under their Emergencies Act, right? So take that into account as, and you and Leah want to talk about the utility of moving to a federalized emergency, take that into account. One last point here, if they're going to trigger one of these emergencies, they need to consult with the provinces. 
if the emergency exceeds the capacity of a single province to deal with, then it's a consultation, not a veto. But it's, there's still got to be consultation with the provinces. So I'll let you guys uh, talk about some of those features. And probably also just one last thing. There's an automatic sunset provision. There's a requirement that the emergency sunset after uh, a period of time, uh, it's not that this can be indefinite. Um, and that's true for all these sorts of emergency. Now, it could be renewed. But uh, the other thing, once the emergency is declared, you got to bring Parliament back. And Parliament's got to deliberate on the emergency. We're seeing a lot of discussion right now because the Prime Minister uh, noted that he was asking the Governor General to recall Parliament. Yeah, so uh, the sunset on a public welfare emergency is uh, 90 days. So um, like Craig said, you don't need Parliament to be in session to uh, to invoke a public welfare emergency. That's done by Cabinet. But Parliament would need to be recalled if it's not sitting in order to debate this immediately Parliament could basically, if they voted against it, could quash the emergency that's been put into place. Correct me um, if I'm wrong, um, parliamentary quorum is only 20 MPs. That's what Phil Legasse has put on Twitter, and I'm going to take it that he knows what he's talking about when it comes to such matters, yes. That uh, in pocket squares. 15, 15 senators is what he said. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, is isn't a ton of people when you, you think about it, but it also gives those 20 MPs the power to deny the continuation of a public welfare emergency as well. I mean, I guess my question here is, um, this has never been invoked before, and it's it's a very serious signal. I mean, certainly Canada wouldn't be alone in enacting this kind of legislation, but it's it's a new thing for us. And, you know, for all the talk we sometimes see of suspend the charter, suspend the constitution, you, you can't really do that. And I think it's also worth noting, um, as I think you do in your chapter, which we should tweet a link out to, is just because you invoke this, doesn't mean the constitution suspended or the charter, all of the charters suspended, uh, but part of it can be. You know, none of it can be. Just, just to underscore that, Stephanie, the, the, the act is very clear that it's not invoking what's known as the notwithstanding clause. Recall, we've talked about that in past episodes. It, it doesn't preclude the application of any provision of the charter. The charter remains intact, as does, by the way, the Canadian Bill of Rights. Uh, and so if you're going to justify any of these measures after the fact, uh, and they do trench on a charter right, uh, then you're talking about justifying under what's known as Section 1 of the Charter. Uh, now, that's entirely possible so long as your measures are reasonable, but uh, keep in mind that we're not talking about some kind of special martial law here. Right, and yeah, that's what I just want to make clear because I think that's what people are um, going on about. We did see some U.S. politicians talking about martial law, which was, uh, I believe, a, a video game character from does not, the 1990s. Does, does not exist in Canada, right? There is no concept of martial law in, in Canadian law. Right. Yeah. But uh, just it's interesting that we have seen that talk in the United States. And I think these are the kinds of things that we, we tend to conflate. I guess my question is, like, what, what are the big risks here that are involved? And, and the first one I have is really, at least in my view, would be the fact that, you know, because we do interpret Canadian law so much through like an American prism, that people really do think that the charter suspended, that the Constitution suspended, that we're in martial law. But you know, I think the key thing is here is that no, it's like there's certain extraordinary powers which are, as you say, closed. And and just just to make that clear, but you know, how how is the government going to effectively communicate this? Is I guess one of the, the the big questions I have when we look at critical infrastructure protection and and how governments deal with emergencies. It's it, it, there's a real paradox here, which is that citizens of a country tend to look at their government at a time they're able to act the least. 
And, uh, you know, so when you invoke this legislation that has never been invoked before and it sends a signal, but how these things are communicated is going to be, I think, just absolutely fundamentally important. Yeah, you're right. And so here's the thing about our legislation. A, when you invoke a public welfare emergency, it doesn't automatically negate, as Craig said, any of your rights, and it doesn't automatically give certain powers to the government. What it does is it says they can create orders and regulations in certain areas. And so those orders and regulations still need to be um, put out and communicated. So it's not a, all of a sudden, the government can do all of these things, and it's not clear what the government can do and can't do, and it's just this basket of things it can now do to people. So orders and regulations would need to be published saying what the government is now doing under its authorities under a public welfare emergency. And what it's doing should be communicated very clearly. And those orders and regulations, just like we've seen the government rolled out measures step-by-step um, in a rolling fashion based on need, these orders and regulations could likewise be rolled out as needed and not going with the sledgehammer right away. So some of the things um, that the government um, would be able to do under a public welfare emergency would be to do things like requisition property that was typically public property or private property, maybe provincial property. Um, so like a stadium, right? We want to now use a stadium. Um, we're going to requisition it as a, as a hospital, right? That's the type of thing that can be done under a public welfare emergency. The authorization of emergency payments, the establishment, again, as we said, of, of emergency shelters and hospitals, mandating that certain people that have the capacity to provide certain essential services have to do it. And an example that I keep using is nursing students. We're going to now say that nursing students can and must assist in this shortage of, um, of medical uh, as, as medically needed in an area where they're capable of providing assistance. These are the types of things, and they don't need to be done all at once. They can be done as needed. And as long as the government is narrowly tailoring what it's doing and communicating to the public, and there's a clear understanding that these mechanisms are um, proportionate and necessary, I think we, we can all kind of get on board with that. But again, you are going to limit people's liberty, right? You're telling people they have to do certain things or that you're using their property for a certain purpose, or you, you cannot go to this area, or you cannot travel here, you are limiting people's liberty and freedom of movement. Um, and you are potentially putting people at risk, especially if you're mandating people to provide certain services that could limit people's charter rights. But again, as Craig said, in an emergency, if those are narrowly tailored, proportionate, and, and, and responsible to the, the, the needs of the crisis, you may be able to satisfy that that's a reasonable limit on that charter right given the circumstances. But all of that needs to be very clearly communicated to the public so they understand why what is happening is happening and that these are not kind of draconian measures being slapped down on, on Canadian society, but necessary yeah. to handle the crisis. And, and Stephanie, just to amplify that, so actually under, the, again, the, we've been talking a little bit about the checks and balances. Remember, the Emergencies Act was designed to avoid the absolutes of the War Measures Act, right? So it's built with these checks and balances. So not just this idea of a motion being approved by Parliament of the Declaration, but the regulations and orders that are issued in relation to one of these emergencies themselves have to go uh, in front of Parliament, right? And so uh, there is, uh, there's no such thing as a secret order or regulation under the Emergencies Act. And so more specifically in relation to the 
uh, orders or regulations that, that may be issued, they have to be issued in Parliament within two sitting days uh, under the Act. And uh, 10 senators or 20 MPs may bring a motion calling for revocation or amendment, right? And so there is a capacity for Parliament to shut down what it views as an excessive order without going through the regular legislative process itself. So checks and balances are quite robust in this provision. Maybe one other thing we should talk about in terms of emergencies, keep in mind that many of those powers that Leah just listed in, under the Emergencies Act for public welfare emergencies, again, I'm going to underscore that, at least in principle, are available to the provinces under their own emergencies laws. Now, I think there's maybe an open question as to whatever the law says may be one thing, but what about the capacity of the provinces administratively uh, to grapple with the actual nature of the emergency? Um, does that require federal intervention at a legal level? I mean, I don't know, um, ultimately, and it's not my call. Certainly, it seems likely the provinces will need financial assistance. But as we've said, the Emergency Management Act allows that already. So are we really going to need to have a serious conversation about the Emergencies Act at this point? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think maybe, Leah, you have some views on this. but Yeah, I just think I'm hesitant to say that the government needs to do this now because we've seen our provinces handle major natural disasters that had major impacts on infrastructure, people's lives. You know, you think about everything that Alberta has had to deal with in the last several years with um, flooding and fires, what Manitoba deals with on their regular basis, what New Brunswick deals with on a regular basis, what Quebec has dealt with in terms of ice storms. Um, you know, our provinces are all capable of dealing with major natural disaster type issues usually with additional funding from the federal government, but they they have adapted to deal with these crises. The fact that we're all dealing with it at once, I don't know that beyond monetarily needing monetary assistance and assistance at the borders, does that mean that all of a sudden the provinces are not capable of handling the issues with inside their jurisdiction? But we could get there, right? If all of a sudden one province's capacity to deal with a healthcare situation is really beyond their means and that we need to to manage resources and personnel and and essential services at a federal level, you could get there. But I don't know that we're there yet. I just have one final question because I'm cognizant of time. This piece of legislation came out in 1988. Is there anything in this legislation that you think is out of date or that may need to be addressed in the future? Or is this actually just a test of the legislation that we will then have to figure out in the coming years? I think it's too early to say in the sense that we've never invoked it, as as we've said already. I think it is a very elegant piece of legislation. It's very thoughtful. Uh, it does have these graduated sets of emergency. It's, uh, it has checks and balances. Will it pass the test of time? Well, I've always thought that, look, if the Emergencies Act was too constraining and it turned out that it was uh, unhelpful for the purposes, it'd be very easy for Parliament to enact a new override special emergency legislation. And for those of you who think that the parliamentary process always moves slowly, uh, no, no, it can move in an afternoon if need be. Uh, now, of course, Parliament has to be in session for that purpose. But one of the interesting questions I think is going to be, are parliamentarians now going to start communicating and holding uh, their parliamentary sessions over Zoom like the rest of us? There were some jokes about that on Twitter. Uh, frankly, I see no reason why they couldn't, but uh, still, uh, in, in principle, Parliament can move very quickly if it needs to, and, and it could overcome whatever constraints are viewed as excessive with the Emergencies Act. I personally don't see those constraints at present. Just before we leave emergencies and the idea that we could use these special powers to compel things that would be unusual in the regular course, I just want to point to uh, another statute, the Defense Production Act. Now, in the U.S., the president has invoked the Defense Production Act, which allows the federal government to federalize certain industries to produce defense supplies. In this case, we're probably talking about things like ventilators. 
There is a Defense Production Act in Canada as well. It's used for a number of purposes, not least as a way of implementing in Canada U.S. export controls on certain sensitive technologies. And Lee and I talk about that in our book. But there are also other provisions that deal with defense supplies. And then there's a more open-ended provision called stockpiling found in Section 15. And it allows the government to acquire, store, maintain, transport, sell, exchange, or otherwise deal with materials that are designated as essential to the needs of the community, which is a fairly open-ended concept, not tied to defense supplies. And so it's possible that the government could invoke this provision, although it's not clear to me that it adds more than what is currently available under either provincial or federal emergencies law. I point to it anyway, because I know there's been some conversation about defense production since the U.S. move. So, Stephanie, why don't we just one last thing here? Uh, and many people are thinking that, oh, emergencies, they go hand in glove with the call of the Canadian Armed Forces. And that tends to be true in practice, but not in law. Right. So you don't need to call out the Canadian Armed Forces. You do not need an emergency. Uh, in fact, the call of the Canadian Armed Forces is governed by a whole bunch of different instruments. We've talked about some of those with Blaise Cathcart in some of our earlier episodes about a year, two years ago. But the one that would apply here almost certainly under the National Defense Act was, is what's known as public service. And so the, there's a provision of the National Defense Act that allows the federal government to deploy the Canadian Armed Forces in public service. And we've seen this regularly. It's, it's, there's a standing operation called Operation Lentis, uh, in which the Canadian Armed Forces provide support in, in response to natural disasters, floods, wildfires, et cetera, snowstorms. Uh, and I haven't seen indications yet that Operation Lentis is in operation in respect to the current crisis, but I imagine they've been very busy over at National Defense Headquarters preparing for the eventuality of having to deploy the resources of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, to bolster the, the civil uh, resources. I think a couple of ways we may see that is in setting up um, makeshift hospitals, makeshift uh, housing. Uh, military is very good at that. They're well equipped to deal with that in ways that most civil society institutions are not. Um, they also have um, additional medical personnel that typically would not be called in to deal with civilian um, issues and medical issues that could be triggered. We could see potentially military personnel being designated to work along the border in certain capacities if if that were to need be. Um, But realistically, I think the place we'll see the military be prepared to facilitate is in the the setup of of makeshift hospitals or shelters if need be. I think that's where their skill set would be most valuable here. The only other thing I could really think of is the extent to which we're seeing cyber attacks in relation to COVID-19. We saw in the United States there was an attack against Homeland Security. It's not defense per se, but I think keeping, you know, obviously the CSE under the Department of Defense with its own legislative act, they're having to increasingly be involved in all of this, but potentially having to monitor for these kind of malicious cyber attempts that we're, that we're seeing come through, which is really unfortunate at, at this time, but uh, I guess just part of the new world that we live in. And there's a role for the Cyber Center here too, in countering disinformation and working with uh, public health officials on, on that. But I think the one thing we also need to be thinking about is that um, while we're distracted, we're more vulnerable. Um, and that, that yes. at, a, at a time like this is not a time to forget all of our other national security best practices, all our cyber hygiene, all of our, our, our typical mechanisms for infrastructure protection. Um, when we're down on Manning, you know, distracted, this is an opportunity for those who seek to harm us to, to leverage that. And I think we all need to remind ourselves of whatever our best practices are for typical security 
and to not forget those in, in times of, of crisis. And the one thing else that I wanted to say, Stephanie, is to give a shout out to all of our um, foreign service officers and military personnel who don't get to come home and be with their loved ones um, at a time like this and are continuing to service Canadians abroad uh, who are trying to get home, that they uh, deserve our mad respect as well. Mad, re- mad respect indeed. Well, thanks very much, everyone. This has been a long podcast, but it's a big topic. And uh, I imagine that there's going to be a whole bunch of new law school courses on emergency law that have never existed before after this. Uh, In fact, I've been joking with our dean that we have to put on a whole new course on COVID-19 law because the legal fallout from this event is going to be pretty enormous. Urban Law, call me. I'll write the book. All right, folks, thanks very much. And we're planning to do more podcasts. I'm assuming that probably the listening public has more time now to listen to podcasts. <laughs> that aren't COVID related. <laughs> we're here to serve. I just got to get my lungs back. So um, any day now, any day. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye. Bye.